He is one of the world's most influential proponents of business model innovation and value proposition design. More recently, his focus has been on testing business ideas and developing a roadmap for invincible organizations. Over a decade ago, alongside fellow Swiss professor Yves Penure, his long-term co-author, he created a framework for large companies and startups to innovate by rapidly experimenting with new business models and value propositions. His business model canvas, a strategic management tool to design, test, build, and manage business models, has been successfully used by such leading organizations as Coca-Cola, GE, Procter & Gamble, MasterCard, Ericsson, Lego, and 3M. A passionate entrepreneur and founder of Strategizer, a distinguished member of Thinkers 50, the Global Drucker Forum, and the recipient of the European Union's inaugural Innovation Luminary Award, join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Alex Osterwalder. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. If you've heard me deliver a keynote speech, present a recent interactive online roundtable, have read any of my books, or have been a listener of this Curvebenders podcast, you'd be happy to hear that we've launched NOR Forum. It's a member-based community to ask questions, join discussions, and get daily access to me and my content. From relationship economics ideas on your strategic relationships to co-creating new market opportunities to my current research and writing of the next book, Curvebenders, as strategic relationships and your nonlinear growth to what I'm thinking and reading. I'm sharing replays and downloads of past podcasts. I want you to join this free community, not just to consume great content, but apply it in your personal and professional growth journey. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum for exclusive content, resources, and events. Again, that's norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. This is David Knorr, and I'm elated to uh, have uh, as a guest today a, a good recent friend, but I've been a, a longtime fan of his work and insights. And if you want uh, incredible nuggets throughout your day on innovation articles, perspectives, uh, unique insights. 
my my guest on the Curvebenders podcast today is unequivocally a, a, a fountain of these types of ideas. I want to welcome uh, Alex Osterwalder. Alex, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So for those who may not know as much about you or, or uh, surely they've been living in a cave, but that's not a story <laughs> altogether. So, so talk about your background and kind of how have you arrived here in 2020 with, with the phenomenal worldwide success of business model generation, business model canvas. <laughs> so um, to put it short, I, I'm just obsessed by trying to help people do better work um, in business uh, help business people, and that goes from entrepreneurs to uh, you know government organizations all the way to the largest corporations. Just help people in companies do better work. Now, the main area where I started out was innovation, um, specifically business model innovation. Uh, did a PhD on the topic, a very obscure title called the business model ontology. But then, you know, together with my my PhD supervisor Yves Pinier, now my long term friend and co author. We um, thought, let's bring these ideas to the masses and wrote a book, very visual book called uh, Business Model Generation. That took off. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, it's not just millions of people who bought the book, but people started to use the business model canvas, so the tool at the heart of this around the world. And then from then on, you know, we really started to build tools systematically, um, conceptual tools that would help um, business people solve business challenges. You know, what's my business model? What's my value proposition? Uh, what's my portfolio of businesses? What's my organizational culture? So we continued to do that. And then together with Alan Smith, we created a company called Strategizer, where we bring these things into large corporations around the world. So I'm fascinated that to date, a lot of the perceptions of innovation seems to be around products and services. And you you came at this from a very different lens of it's the business model. So so innovative products and services are great, but if they're in a cocoon, they're not really going to go anywhere. How do we now take it to market? You talk about a broader story. You talk about a broader go-to-market approach. Yeah. Talk to me about what did that idea of of the business model which was very unique again, what, 10, 15 yeah. years ago came from. Yeah. So maybe just first, you know, this whole idea about product innovation, uh, better prices, et cetera, that's fine, right? You do need to have great products and services to compete. Now, the problem is there are actually two problems. If you just have a great product, it's actually very easy to make great products and services. What's harder is to make great products and services with a scalable and profitable business model. So you need both, right? Uh, value proposition and business model. That's number one. Otherwise, you won't survive. Number two is, I think it's it's getting harder and harder to just survive competing on product services and technologies, technology innovation. It gives you a short-term advantage, but there's so many competitors out there and they're all very fast. It's hard to stay ahead. So when we started working on this with Eve 20 years ago, we already realized, hey, business models is, is uh, where, you know, you can still create this competitive advantage. Back then, it was all around internet and technology, and it was a whole boom until it fell apart. But we always seen business models as, you know, this is the emerging kind of unit of analysis. And then to make it even broader, you know, People still look at um, Michael Porter's Five Forces and so, but that's 1985 when 
industry analysis and competing in a specific industry with great products and very efficient ways of working. That was the, that was the way you were competing. Today, the world has changed. <laughs> you know, we're 2020. And today, the best companies out there compete A, on better business models, and B, they, com- they constantly reinvent their business models. So this game has completely changed. And a lot of the people are still playing kind of the old game competing on products and services and technology innovation is just not enough anymore. It's, it's extremely hard to, you know, even stay alive, definitely not stay ahead. So, you know, why did we come up with that? It's just because we thought originally it just started in the startup world. thought that, Hey, we need to help people think through their business models and we need to help people, you know, really ask themselves how they can design better business models. And today, this is not just, you know, in technology, media. And so this is across the board, pharmaceutical companies, banks. The business models in those industries are expiring because increasingly competitors are coming from other places and competitors are transcending industry boundaries. So one example, um, take Ping An. It's my favorite example at the moment to look at. You know, they've been, they were traditional banking and insurance conglomerate. And then eight years ago, the founder, Peter Ma, this is a Chinese company, he said, well, we're, we're going to die if we compete in this space the way we've done so far. And he decided to stop just competing as a bank or insurance company and to become an internet player competing against Tencent, Alibaba, Google, Amazon, and so on. And he transformed the company into a powerhouse that doesn't compete just in banking and uh, insurance, but that competes in different arenas, health, uh, transportation, etc. It's a good example. Today, Ping An, um, you know, is the owner of Good Doctor, which is the biggest health platform on the planet, <laughs> internet platform with uh, over 260 million users. Great. Why didn't UBS come up with that? Or, you know, to take a different angle, why doesn't Novartis come up with that? Because those companies are all still competing on products in their industry. And I think if you are doing that, you're defining yourself through an industry and you're competing on products and just technology, you're going to die inevitably. So the great players of today, um, Amazon, Ping An, and and, take the others like Apple and so, they're all transcending industry boundaries and competing on better business models. Even more, they're competing on better business model portfolios. So that's where the competition is today. And kind of 20 years ago, we started thinking about that. We didn't know everything that we know today. So over 20 years, we started to realize what's really going on. And we started to build the tools to help people compete this way. So you've been, uh, by the way, I was fascinated at the consumer electronics show that Sony announced a new car, right? <laughs> electronic car. And, yeah. and that, again, not, not a logical thing you would think, you would think of, of that company doing, but yeah. an absolute example of companies, you know, yeah. crossing boundaries of their industries. So Alex, in 2020, and you've been at this now for what almost twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are what are the some of the challenges? What are the biggest challenges? I'm going to ask you about first, and then yeah. subsequently opportunities you're seeing with individual leaders, particularly in mature companies and mature industries. You you rattled off a couple, but I want to know what what are you seeing as the biggest challenges? So 
I don't know a company on the planet today that doesn't do some type of innovation, right? And they're all saying, yeah, we're doing this. The challenge is a bit, I'd say, that most of them are doing innovation theater. Maybe 5 to 10% of companies are really, you know, doing some form of strategic innovation, um, really standing out. So if we look at that, if we just look at Amazon and Ping An to take two examples and ask ourselves, what are they doing that others are not? We'll see the opportunities. So, you know, take Jeff Bezos as a leader. Um, you know, Amazon can fix a lot of things, and they have a lot of things to do better. But one thing they're, I'd say, number one at worldwide is innovation. Nobody's better at innovation than Amazon. And when I say innovation, I mean all forms of innovation. Efficiency innovation, sustaining innovation, transformative innovation, right? The whole range so what do they do extremely well? They have a leader at the head of the company that you know publicly says, Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. Wow. How many CEOs do you hear say that? Most of them say, We're, you know, we're great, we're at we're good at excellence, you know, quality and you know, no mistakes. And that is great if you just executing a business model, but that's not enough anymore. Today to survive, you need to innovate across the board, improve your processes, create new products and services and value propositions, but also, you know, constantly reinvent your business model. You can't do that without experimentation, without exploration. And exploration inevitably means a lot of failures. And to take one more quote from Jeb Bezos, is, you know, that he says, the thousands of failures will all pay off with one big success. And you won't get that one big success, that outlier, if you don't try a thousand different things. So if you want to win big, if you are the size of a Amazon or Apple or GE or whatever, uh, you need to experiment a lot. You need to have thousands of experiments a year, at least, to get those outliers. Okay, so the, the opportunity there is a lot more exploration but not just, you know, the kind of innovation theater that's going on today in companies, but strategically investing in inventing the future. And I don't mean R&D. R&D is great, but R&D doesn't mean innovation. R&D is new technologies. New technologies without packaging them in a value proposition and business model is worth nothing. So what we need to do, what the great opportunity is, is to strategically invest in the exploration of new value propositions and new business models. And that's exactly what Amazon and Pingan do really well. In those two cases, they do it with technology innovation. But to give another case, great opportunity as well. You don't need to do technology to innovate. Um, you know, my favorite example is an old one, Nintendo Wii. They actually disrupted an entire industry with an inferior technological product. The Nintendo Wii, at the time they launched it, they were competing in this, against the Sony PlayStation 2, with, which was technologically superior, better platform. But the Wii was targeting underserved customers with a value proposition for that underserved segment, casual gamers, with a fun value proposition, you know, motion control to play games, fun, simple games, which hardcore gamers wouldn't have loved, but casual gamers did. And they did that with a cheap console so they could make profits on the consoles and the games. So they were really good at that. So the, the strategic opportunity is to invest in exploration of new value propositions and new business models. And if you're already doing R&D, you know, you have multi-billion dollar R&D budget, 
take 10% of that and invest it not in technology, but new value propositions and business models. And the big thing is, I think the big opportunity is bring it to a strategic level. Put your best, most powerful people on that job. Don't give it to some you know, fresh graduate from a university because nobody will take them seriously. They can be as smart as they want. They can have the best ideas. Ideas don't matter, right? So innovation is about turning ideas into value propositions and business models. And that is only possible when you have power in an organization. Otherwise, you're dead from the start. How do you help a CEO justify that investment to the leadership team, to the board? Is it is it really the cost of not doing anything is going to be you going off a cliff? Or, or, <laughs> or, 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 or what's, what's – and again, I'm going to keep asking about yeah. – particularly mature companies and mature industries. You and I yeah. know that $2 billion, that 3 billion euro, right? Company has to evolve to remain relevant, but the leadership team struggling in making those strategic investments to explore. Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of, there are a couple of um, things at play there. The first one is, yes, it's hard for CEOs to have the courage to move, right? So, you know, if you take uh, Ping An, you take Amazon, you'll say, well, you know, those are owner CEOs. <laughs> it's easy for them because they are not accountable to anybody else than themselves as the main shareholders. Um, but there are multiple cases where CEOs have made that jump. So an older example is Paul Polman of Unilever, who strategically invested in, uh, you know, sustainability and innovation in sustainability. And he had to make that long-term investment. And he was not an owner, you know, on a large scale. He had to convince shareholders. So it is possible. A more recent example is uh, Bracken Darrell from Logitech, which is also, you know, over $2 billion company. You know, he turned around Logitech. And there is a little bit easier in quotes because there was, was more of a crisis, but, you know, strategically investing in the future. So you today, I think you just have to do it. And the challenge is, you know, the question is that can um, manager CEOs rather than owner CEOs, you know, uh, former entrepreneurs, is that even possible for them to do? You know, given the examples I just mentioned, I do believe so. At the beginning, I wasn't quite sure because today shareholders, you know, are hard to convince. Then you have the um, activist investors who are not interested that much in the long term. They want the short term, you know, capital gains and so on. So it, it is possible. That's number one. The other aspect is, is not just possible. It's increasingly becoming a matter of survival. If you're in pharma and you're not starting to think about transforming your business model and business models is very simple. You're probably going to die. You might be among those one or two that can still survive on the old, you know, business model of selling blockbuster blocks, uh, um, drugs. But that will be very few. One or two can live with that business model. Most of them will have to reinvent themselves. And that means transcending industry boundaries. You know, again, question is, why did um, Novartis or Roche to take two Swiss pharma companies, two of the giants with huge, huge R&D budgets, like they're among the top 20 R&D spenders, like actually five or six of the pharma companies are among the top 20 R&D spenders. They don't reinvent their business model. So what can they do? And how can they, how can they uh, you know, really make that jump? Well, again, just look around you. <laughs> companies, you know, business models in most industries are expiring. Just competing in one industry is not 
a valid recipe anymore. The precursors are always, you know, the tech companies like Amazon and Google and so. Everything that happens there is probably going to happen later on to the rest of the world, happening to pharma and banking right now. So you can already see the writing on the wall. Just copy, <laughs> copy the innovation culture of Amazon and you will see it's not as risky as you think. So basically following these recipes is a recipe of risk reduction. It sounds risky to go in innovation. It actually isn't if you do it the right way because you don't invest in one or two big, bold ideas. That's the myth. Oh, I just need one or two big, great ideas and make a bold bet. Then you're going to fail because you're going to maximize risk. What you really need to do as a CEO is invest in a portfolio of explorations. And when you invest in a portfolio of explorations, you'll have two options, either home grow new businesses like Amazon did with Amazon Web Services, or when you've learned what works and what doesn't, you can make the right acquisitions, which is becoming more expensive. But actually, the, 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 the big thing here is, the big idea is that innovation is not risky if you do it the right way. And what you said at the beginning, before I started, you know, blabbling on and getting excited about this, <laughs> my answer is it's riskier today to do nothing. It's getting increasingly risky and you'll increasingly end up like Kodak if you just try to cost cut yourself to the future. Efficiency innovation is not enough. Most companies that I see from the inside they even get innovation prizes because they do crazy complicated technology innovations, but just to improve their business model. Now, that's not wrong, but it's not enough. So what I say is most of the companies I see today from the inside, they're actually more efficiently dying with their dying business model because they're getting better and better at what they were good at. But if that business model is dying, it's risky to just do that. Investing in a portfolio of explorations of new value propositions and business models is a sure bet to get a return. That's what the financial industry has been doing for decades. Diversification, investing in a portfolio, things that can give you a certain return, efficiency, innovation in the short term, things that will give you a longer return, a bigger return in the long term, which is a risk here, but you just have a couple of those in your portfolio that will assure your future. So you need to manage a portfolio of businesses, of investments, exploit what you have, get better at that, but invest in the future uh, as well. So this whole idea of shifting towards portfolios a lot more, not just portfolios of existing businesses, but portfolios of explorations, that's crucial. And that's what I'm not seeing enough. And that's an extremely risky position to not invest in the future. And that's exactly what Amazon and Ping An do really well. And that's what every company on the planet could easily do if they just copied it. So now it's becoming a trend to read Jeff Bezos's uh, letters to shareholders, right? And I think that's great because if you read that, you understand exactly what you should do as a CEO to become a world-class innovator. If you've just joined us, you've been listening to Alex Osterwalder, uh, world-renowned. Is, is, is a good friend, but is also humble. Their, their work on, on uh, business model generation, value proposition design, most recently testing business ideas. I think you're writing the next book on the resilient company. Is that is that true? Yeah, we, we're even more arrogant. We call it the invincible company. <laughs> I love it. In the sense it. that, I, you know, people say, well, Alex, Alex, you can't be invincible. Well, you know, that's exactly the point. So all you can do is constantly reinvent yourself. 
so you can get close to some type of invincibility because you'll always stay ahead of everybody else, right? Love it. So uh, I want you to extrapolate forward in the next decade, in the next two decades. What are what are your perceptions of this future of 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 innovative business models and their formulation, their iteration, their testing? Where is your space headed? Um. What we're seeing now, you know, there's already a big difference from five to 10 years ago. So we're seeing more and more companies becoming a little bit more Amazon-like in the way they're exploring value propositions or business models. I can give you a couple of uh, public cases that, you know, we worked with and that I can talk about because we published about it. So if you take um, Bosch or Bayer, they are starting to invest every year into a portfolio of explorations, somewhere between 20 and 60 projects that explore new ideas. And what's happening there is that the, the, in the first phase, you don't make a big investment. You're not making a big bet. You invest every year in 20 to 60 projects, small amounts of money, just so a team can explore for something like three months. But then after three months, what you're going to do is you're only going to give follow-up investments. This is what you call metered funding. You're only going to give follow-up investments to maybe 30 to maximum 50% of the teams. So you're basically killing 50 to 70, 80% of the projects, right? But killing is the wrong word because this is not failure. This is just teams that we're exploring and they realize there's nothing there. So you're shutting down the project. You're not wasting money. You're saying, okay, we tried, didn't work, but you're getting 30 to 50% of the teams to get to the next round. 30, 50% of those next teams will get another three, maybe to six months to prove, you know, to test their idea, to prove that there's enough evidence there that this should go on. And when I say evidence, I don't mean a better business plan or a better spreadsheet. That's not testing of an idea or more environmental analysis. No, it's talking to customers. It's uh, talk, talking about willingness to pay, to making even more sophisticated experiments, not necessarily building a product, but just, you know, experiments to prove willingness to pay, to, to prove the pricing point that could be valid. After six months, again, you'll take 50% of the teams that you'll uh, take out and you'll invest in 50 to 30% of the teams. So you're constantly narrowing down the initial 20 to 60 down to a smaller percentage. And that's how you get the winners to emerge. That's exactly what Bayer and, uh, and, and uh, Bosch have now been doing systematically over three years and they're starting to get the results. That's a very concrete case. And that's exactly the same approach that companies like Amazon or Ping An, Ping An have at, at an even larger scale, right? So 20 to 60 teams, when you're this, you know, the size of Amazon or Bosch is not enough. Bosch has 400,000 people. You, you know, 60, 60 teams is not enough. So they're starting to scale that up to do that even more broadly. Now, a lot of small companies might ask, well, but that's, that's just for the big ones then. No, it isn't, because if you don't need a multi-billion dollar success, it's enough to invest in five to ten teams. But you need to apply the same logic that you can't pick the winner. In innovation, you can't, can't pick the winner, so you need to invest in a portfolio. We have the rule of thumb that you invest in a million in exploration, you'll get 10 million back. 
Oh, you need 100 million? Guess what? You're going to have to invest 10 million. Oh, you need a billion? Well, you're going to have to invest 100 million. But not 100 million in two ideas, but 100 million in a whole series of explorations that you will constantly narrow down very quickly so the winners can emerge. And when I say winners, it means winning ideas and winning teams. That's exactly what's happening today in many companies that are doing what I call business R&D. That's business R&D. Actually bringing a small Silicon Valley into every single company. The positive sides of the Silicon Valley, right? Not the negative sides. I, I love that approach. I have two quick questions just in that scenario for you. What should happen for, uh, from the learnings of those that aren't passing the, the, the funding gates and moving on? What, where should those – obviously, they failed, but they, they should have learned something. What yeah, should happen yeah. to those learnings? So – I'd say, you know, there's some things we can learn from the failures and we can capture that. It becomes a little bit of the knowledge management. But there's something more valuable, I think, is that and what we've seen in the past is when it when a team did a good job exploring, but the world was not ready, the technology was not ready, whatever reason led them to failure, that's okay. Actually, it's almost less interesting what they learned about the failure per se more interesting is the experience they gained doing this. Because it's a little bit like tennis, right? When you practice, you get better. Roger Federer didn't just, you know, fall out of his bed one morning as a teenager and, and you know, turn up to become the world's best ben- tennis player, which the Spaniards might disagree. Um, <laughs> the Swiss clearly know who's the best tennis player in the world. Don't, um, don't uh, for my audience, don't get Alex started on Swiss chocolate. Because yeah, right, that will exactly. be another long conversation. Chocolate, mountains, you know, we have we have a few things, but they're pretty good. Um so so <laughs> now I forgot what I was talking about, but to, so um you Experience need to practice you need to practice innovation. So those teams or people who explored shouldn't just go back to becoming executors. You actually do want those who are really good add innovation, add exploration to become professional explorers because you get better at it. And this is where we can learn a lot also from Silicon Valley. Guess what? The best entrepreneurs, they've learned so much before, not necessarily just about their domain, but about the process of building a new growth engine. That is something you learn. And you take medicine You don't wake up and become a great surgeon. You have to learn the basics, the more theoretical basis, uh, right, around uh, basics, around around, uh, anatomy and physiology. But then you also learn the practical stuff by, you know, doing visits with experienced uh, doctors, and then you start snipping around as a surgeon on dead bodies and then on living bodies. You get better and better at this. So the teams that fail, the people who fail, learned a ton about the process of exploring a business and ultimately also scaling a business, that's what we should cherish most, that some people are very good at exploration and building new value propositions in business malls, and some not so good. And you get better at it over time. That talent is not just, you know, is not just talent. Talent alone is overrated. It's not enough. You need to hone that practice. And that's where I think the professional innovator, almost like the paid entrepreneur. So rather than having the rough ride of an entrepreneur, because, you know, that's pretty tough. You don't have a salary. You're putting your savings on the line, et cetera. What if we could have paid entrepreneurs inside companies? 
So they have a salary because, you know, what motivates most entrepreneurs and innovators not getting rich or so, definitely not the primary driver, is just the fact that they want to innovate and that they have fun doing that. They want to change the world. Guess what? Large companies have a lot of assets that can help people. So I do think there's a whole there's a whole opportunity for paid innovators, paid entrepreneurs. And I think that's one of the future trends we'll see is that we're not going to have people in execution. They're going to explore one idea, go back to execution. No, we're going to have some people who are going to become professional innovators, just like we have professional scientists in R&D. We're going to have professional business R&D people exploring new business opportunities, and they're going to be on the payroll for that. You mentioned with the Bosch and Bear example that uh, they're starting to see after you know kind of systematic investment in this kind of portfolio of exploration, they're starting to see some concrete results. Can you talk about what some of those results could look like? Could How would they manifest themselves? What do they look like? So, you know, there's the most basic result you get is more experienced innovators, like they learn about the process. And that you'll get on a large scale. So you'll constantly get a flow of smaller innovations just by investing in this type of process. But what you start to see after three years is also multi-million dollar returns. So the return on the initial budget and the initial portfolio is exactly the kind of thing that I was talking about. So when I say, you know, you invest a million, get 10 million back, that's a rule of thumb that I see from practice. So you invest in a portfolio of ideas, $1 million, which might be, again, in what, 10 projects, 20, 60 projects. And then you do follow-up investments where every time you increase kind of the investments. The initial investments might be between five dollars and $15,000. And then you gradually increase to $50,000, $100,000, $500, $500, But you get that 10 to 1 return. And that's exactly what we're seeing that investing in a portfolio diversifies risks. And what you exactly see, and this is why I'm so excited about this stuff, is you don't know up front what are the best ideas and who are the best teams. You think you know, guess what? Mostly you're going to be wrong. So what we see emerge in this kind of process after three years, it becomes very clear. The best ideas emerge, you can't see them at the beginning, they emerge based on the evidence from the market. And the best teams emerge, those who are most entrepreneurial. And entrepreneurship is hard, right? It's not about the idea. It's about turning the idea into a value proposition and business model. That's really hard. It requires persistence. So you see the best teams and the best ideas emerge. And you get this ratio of about 10 to 1 based on your initial kind of portfolio investment. So we really see those kind of results now, in the case of Bayer and Bosch, I can't give you the names of the concrete examples. That's confidential. But if you look at the startup world, you can clearly see that kind of return um, that's, that's uh, emerging. This is a very young phenomenon. So the big corporate successes are only starting to emerge. and Many of them are still um, confidential. But this is happening now only in the corporate world. Whereas in the startup world with venture capital, which is the same logic, it's actually where we learn from. Um, that's been around for a very long time. You can easily see those uh, those returns on portfolios. And it's the same logic. No venture capitalist can pick the winner. They just can't. As experienced as they are, that's why they have a portfolio of investments because you know two of the companies will outperform you know, all the rest. 
We refer to curve benders as strategic relationships that dramatically alter both the direction and destination of where you're going and how you're going to get there. Are there some curve benders in that innovation journey? Are there some relationships that you've seen or you've experienced that dramatically change that trajectory, change that direction? Yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, to put it on a kind of larger scale of, of ecosystems, you know, you, you do take Silicon Valley or you take Berlin or you take London, very similar, or you take, you know, Israel um, or you take certain areas in, in, in Southeast Asia and Asia. Um, what you see is that in some regions, you'll just have more talent for certain things. And what I mean with that is when we're talking about scalable companies, so Silicon Valley is very strong also has some downsides, but they're very strong of, uh, uh, at scaling companies because there's a lot of talent, a lot of people who've done it. So I think, you know, one of the big things when we're talking about relationships is, do you have enough relationships with people who've done it? Because those are the people you can learn from. I, you know, I'm increasingly allergic against people who just have opinions, but they don't have the experience because the opinion is cheap. But what really matters is who can talk to you about things they've done and what can you learn from them? And not just the positive side, but also the negative side. So if I speak to somebody who's failed 10 times, that's awesome because if they're willing to share, they are probably a richer kind of learning relationship than somebody who's, who's uh, succeeded once based on luck and doesn't even realize it was just a lucky punch, right? So people who've done it um, exist, you know, if in, in, in Silicon Valley, there's tons of people who've helped companies scale. They've, you know, in some cases failed, in some cases they've uh, succeeded. Over time, they've learned so much that it becomes likelier for them to succeed. If you fail 10 times and, uh, you know, there's a reason for that failure and it was not just stupidity, you're so smart that you're not going to make those mistakes again. Those are the people you need to learn from. So this whole idea of strategic learning from people who have accumulated experience, that is what's very powerful. And what's nice you know, besides all the kind of th things we're criticizing in Silicon Valley these days, there's a lot to criticize for sure. But what's still very nice is this idea of paying it forward, right? That, that people share a lot. They take meetings where they share experienced entrepreneurs, experienced VCs. They will take the meetings with the young people and help them uh, learn and share. So in terms of curve benders, you know, talking to people who've done it, who are willing to share their failures, that's very powerful because that's what we can learn from um, a lot. And being proud of that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't failed a lot because I think my fear of failure is maybe smaller than for a lot of people. So I look dumb a thousand times until I look smart once. I love it. So talking about where you've been and what you've done and how you've arrived here, can you think of some curve benders in your own life? Who's Who's had a... Uh, not not just a mentor or a coach, but who's had a profound impact, Alex, on not just what you've accomplished, but who you've become? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what immediately comes to mind is my uh, friend and co-author, Yves Pinier, and not just as a mentor, but just, you know, learning from how he has approached uh, challenges, uh, problems, ideas, just this ability to 
conceptualize and simplify, you know, I'm pretty good at that because I was able to learn from the best, right? So I definitely learned that from Eve a lot, you know, just um, trying to conceptualize things that are very abstract, you know, like business models, you know, a lot of people were talking about business models. We were not the first, just, um, you know, learning how to simplify that to the core without making it simplistic. That was something I definitely uh, learned a lot from, from, from Eve then. And he was also clearly a mentor. Then definitely Steve Blank, you know, what, what Steve brought in. So Steve Blank invented the whole and started the whole lean startup movement, you know, with customer development. What was really phenomenal to learn from Steve is, you know, he, he built seven companies to learn from him also that pattern recognition in the business world and understanding, you know, how he has done things in business and, and he's very proud of sharing his failures. Right. And he says like, you know, but if you don't fail, you don't have experience very clearly. So there is a lot that I learned from, uh, from Steve. And then the third person that, you know, I would mention who is now also working on a book actually for strategizer is Stefano Mastro Giacomo, who is now, and he invented a tool called the team alignment map. Uh, we had a consulting firm together uh, 15 years ago. Wow. It's 15 years ago. And um, he was very fascinated by different business methods, you know, the, the balance scorecard and strategy map from uh, Kaplan and Norton. And he was very into design thinking as well and design applying. So learn a lot from him also about simplification and visual thinking, which I was already doing, but then that brought it to the next level when we had our consulting firm together. So those are, there are tons more, that I, you know, like Rita McGrath and so on. But those are the three that I just know off the top of my mind definitely had a huge influence uh, on a lot of what I do. And then of course my co-founder, uh, Alan Smith. And so there's just, just I wouldn't want to just limit it to those three, but those are the, the first three that you know had had uh, had an important impact. That's fantastic. Alex, you've been more than kind with your insights and ideas, and I, I get energized every time we're, we're, we're together. Um, what's the best way for our audience to learn from, follow, or get in touch with you? Uh, just go to the Strategizer website, right? We have a blog there where we publish stuff. All of our books, you know, we put a third to a quarter of the whole book online for free. So we have kind of a freemium model so you can get stuff there. Um, you'll see everything we're doing on our website. And then if you want to go further, you know, we have online courses, we have master classes, we have software and so on. So there's a lot we put out there. And we strongly believe in sharing a lot. Um, though, you know, we are for-profit business, so we need to do that as well. So you'll find a lot of the stuff we do in particular, also the raw thinking sometimes, you know, I post a lot on Twitter, on Instagram, just, you know, the stuff we're working on. So just, uh, just follow strategizer and myself and you'll, and you'll see what we're up to. You've been listening to Alex Osterwalder of Strategizer and the business model generation movement. That's the best way I can describe it on the Curvebenders podcast. Alex, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, David. Great questions and always fun to, uh, to interact with you. I appreciate it. If 
you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on the future of business models with my friend Alex Osterwalder. Business models and value propositions, I've certainly noticed, are aging faster than ever before, spurred by this incredible rapid technological change, increased uncertainty like the one we're in the middle of right now, market volatility, and ever-changing customer demands, making business model innovation, value proposition design, testing your business models, and more recently, this idea to build an invincible company, an essential strategy for driving value creation in any size organization. Although we recorded this episode well before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the global economy, I think you heard how many of Alex's ideas are so incredibly relevant. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles with various references, so check them out in our free member-based community called the NOR Forum. I hope you'll take the time to join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.